This is part one of a two-part podcast. Have you ever wondered whether a particular book was really good or just so-so, and if you could trust the reviews online? When it comes to books related to permaculture, Permies has a large list of reviews for over 100 books. Perhaps you're considering a book for yourself or a friend, or you're just curious about what's out there. Stop by permies.com forward slash book and take a look at the book review grid and read some honest reviews, and hopefully you'll find the next book to add to your collection. All right, I got Alan Booker with me again, and we're going to jump back into the Big Black Book, Permaculture Designer's Manual by Bill Wilson. Uh, today we are covering section 2.4, resources. And uh, just before we do that, we were kind of talking before, and it's like, you know, having read this, it's like suddenly it's like, oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? So we've got a couple of things to kind of and, – and Alan actually sent me over this chart. And, um, and then that made me think of a thing that I was, I was exchanging. I was talking about on Permies earlier this morning. And, uh, and then Alan started, so anyway, we're going to, okay, let's do this in order. Let's get there. Let's do it. So we're going to, we're going to talk about a couple of things really quick before we get in to section 2.4. And, uh, uh, and then we'll do that, uh, because it's, it's related because we got excited. And this is, I thought this was good, substantial stuff. All right, Alan, you sent me over a chart. I did, yes. Do your best to make the chart fit into a podcast. <laughs> well, I think first is to frame where the chart came from, and it came from a few moments of discussion we had after we finished recording the last uh, Big Black Book podcast a little over a week ago, and um, it was, was coming out of a discussion of, some of the needs there at Wheaton Labs for, you know, uh, um, boots and also your vision for uh, maybe cultivating some of the leaders of permaculture going forward. And um, I made a couple of comments on that. And then you said, oh, let's talk about that at the beginning of our next podcast. So write that down. So I did. I wrote it down. And I was thinking about it this morning. And I was thinking about how do I visualize this and this little chart I made in literally five minutes just as a way to visualize it. And so the comment I made was that what's interesting uh, about humans is that um, this innate characteristic of being able to Envision something in the future that does not exist yet, even very complex things, and see it in such a compelling way in your mind's eye that you are willing to give a huge amount of your life energy into trying to make that thing happen. And we tend to call people like that visionaries, right? Um and um, but it's interesting that only a small percentage of people, uh, anthropologists who study this sort of thing, tell us that only a fairly small percentage of people are put together that way. Um, most people are way more practical than that. And uh, as a result, uh, there is a small wedge of the populace that sort of drives certain kinds of change. Um in the PDC, I teach it as the S-curve of adoption, where we talk about the, the visionaries 
at the, the leading edge that are seeing this new thing. And, and then what um, some thinkers like Simon Sinek call the first followers or the early innovators that follow along right behind them. So we can talk about rocket mass heaters, something that you all have really been, you know, one of the innovators and visionaries on. And the fact that, you know, there was, there were folks like Ianto Evans and so forth that were the true visionaries at the beginning. They had this crazy idea and there was a lot of work to be done to make it even start to be practical. And then coming along behind that, you have your innovators who once they see this first real thing on the ground, they can get excited about it and they can sort of become like the second stage visionaries and begin to refine that thing and make it, you know, more practicable and so forth. And eventually you get to the stage where you get to what I would call the third, which is mainstreaming. You get to the point of uh, the average person being able to see the thing and go, ooh, that, oh, that looks good now. And then they can begin to adopt it. And then there's the fourth group in that, which is what I would call the, the late adopters, the holdouts. And they're the ones that um, they are very, very um, slow to take in any new innovation. And um, so then when I'm doing the PDC, I oftentimes ask who are the most important folks in this whole, you know, train of change. And it turns out that the first followers and the early innovators, because they're the ones that look at all the crazy ideas that all the visionaries have, and they validate the ones that might be worth following up. And then also, interestingly, it's your holdouts. Because if the thing that you're changing uh, becomes mainstream and it turned out to be a really bad idea, they're the ones that end up holding the knowledge of how to go back to something that maybe got left behind. So that became the x-axis on my little diagram where I divided uh, the x-axis visionary into four areas. Uh, visionary over on the far right and then innovator. Uh, and then to the left of that mainstream and then to the left of that, um, are, are, you know, holdouts, um, are what I call late adopters, right? And so that kind of divided, um, people's tendency in that direction into, into four categories. And then on the y axis, um, I put industriousness. Um, and broke that into four categories as well, which is, of course, up high on the industriousness uh, category is highly industrious. The next down I called a reliable worker. That's someone who um, is fairly self-directed. You can give them a task and, um, you know, they'll go off and, and be fairly reliable at that task. We need a little more um, management than a highly industrious person who's probably very self-starting. Then you keep on going down, you get what I call productive with supervision. Uh, these are your workers that um, you can give them one or two very specific tasks, and they will go off and, and do that um, and then come back and go, okay, what do I do next? Um, so, you know, they – so forth. And then you get into what I would call unproductive. These are, you know, workers that you, you really difficult to – uh, get much out of them. And so that if you take 
four going uh, on the, the, the x-axis and four going on the y-axis. That gives us 16 blocks or categories of people, starting with visionary and, and highly industrious in the upper right-hand corner, all the way down to late adopter and unproductive in the lower left-hand corner. And um, so then I said, um, what occurs to me is what, Paul, you are looking for in the future leaders are those visionary, highly industrious people. Um, you know, if you have a visionary, unproductive person, then, okay, it's great. They can envision all these marvelous things, and they'll do absolutely nothing to make it happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But the people who tend to show up and do the best at Wheaton Labs are visionary, highly industrious, and also innovative and highly industrious. They are looking to follow on with what the, the, the visionaries that are trying to define the next steps forward, they are really raring to go to jump in as the first followers and to innovate behind that. And then also on the chart I put on the, I said also helpful in visionary work are your visionary reliable workers and your innovator, innovative reliable workers. So, that quadrant of the chart, the upper right-hand quadrant, is what you are looking for and what would really help you to achieve higher velocity. Um, you need both of those attributes in order to do well at Wheaton Labs, whereas somebody who's highly industrious and mainstream or highly industrious late adopter might do well and and be a very highly useful worker in um, other contexts, right? But you don't need just highly industrious. You need highly industrious and innovative and or visionary in what's happening at Wheaton Labs. So that was kind of my diagram. I, I think this is a beautiful diagram. <clears throat> and then I, I already have uh, so much to say about it, but um, I want to start off by saying, Let's take a look at your chart, and we're talking about the big black book today. And I wanna, I wanna kind of see if uh, where Bill Mollison might fit on this chart, and also where Sepp Holzer might fit on this chart. Maybe even David Holmgren. And so I'm going to pretend. So you've got, you've got it's a four by four chart, but we could because we're engineers. Uh, refer to it as more of a spectrum. Yes. We could say that, um, that it's 0 to 10.0, uh, going left to right and 0 to 10.0 going up and down on the chart. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for, for visionary, uh, these three gentlemen, uh, 0 to 10.0. Uh, what numbers would you assign to these three gentlemen on your chart, assuming you've got 0.0 to 10.0 for visionary, just for visionary to start? Wow. That's, that one's, that one's kind of tricky. Um, I will have to give Mollison a 10 on visionary because he really looked towards the future as he was creating a lot of the the systems of 
permaculture, you know, um, and, and like creating the PDC and so forth. I've made comments before about how he understood that um, this is a new system of design that would um, basically be in competition with these very highly entrenched systems of design. So instead of trying to call off and, and directly confront them, he kind of created the PDC almost like a weedy species that could go in and colonize disrupted edges of culture. And as such, created something that could um, have a very short and dynamic adaptive cycle. And you, you kind of see a lot of this sort of thinking and, and, and very long-term visionary thinking about what's possible that um, I think is one of the defining characteristics of, of Mr. Mollison. Um, I agree. Taking a whole bunch of stuff like he did. Yes. And then repackaging it and representing it in a way to become an invasive species, if you will. Yes. Complete with books and the format of the PDC and then ready, go. Be an invasive species and, and conquer the world, uh, on your own without me being involved. If I'm not there, it will continue to, um, spread. <clears throat> and and be invasive. Now, granted, I, I do think we've got a lot of people that are working very hard at uh, spraying <laughs> this invasive species <laughs> yeah. even from their profits because it's like, that's going to danger my profits. Now, I have spoken many times about why is permaculture not currently a uh, a household word. And, and I'm sure you have heard me say all the things, my podcasts and everything else. And my guess is, is it just really quickly, my guess is that for the most part, you agree with my analysis. Broadly, yes. Yeah. I, I have some refining thoughts on it, but yes, I do. Okay. Then, <clears throat> so, uh, um, I, I kind of think that if it were not for those things holding it back, then Bill Mollison's mission would be a success. Now, at the same time, I feel like Sepp Holzer did a lot of <clears throat> visionary and industrious things, but his model was not as far-fetched to be infectious, to be to be something that would be an invasive species. It's more like he did it. He was successful. He had more industry than I say. I mean, he had plenty of vision. But he didn't take it so far as to, um, or at least at least as early in his lifespan, to infect the world. Like he did not come up with the PDC. It's like he did. He he did in time write books to help get the information and knowledge out there. And then of course there's also movies which convey a lot of this, which are are powerful. But they're they're not as invasive, so to speak, as Bill Mollison's work. Yeah, I, I think part of the whole problem is attempting to take the word visionary and, of course, reduce it. This is this is a simplification. We're trying to reduce it to a single dimensional thing. And you would have to say that Mollison was like a planetary visionary. He had he 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 really looked out and was looking at the entire planet and the idea of sustainability and regenerative systems for the whole planet. I think Sepp really started off as a land-based visionary. He, 
he was very focused on his land and having that conversation with the land for a long time. Um, and, and there was, he had a very deep vision for what he could do with his land. And as it continued to evolve, it then started to extend itself to more and more land, right? And so it has moved in a planetary d- direction. Uh, if you read his um, autobiography, basically you can see that he was a bit of a visionary child even and what he was, you know, was doing with the small bits of land he had that he could play with. And so his scope, I think, has grown over time. And now we have to call David Holmgren sort of the quiet visionary. He also is quite visionary in his own way, but he is an introspective visionary in many ways um, and uh, speaks quietly and um, in, a, in a different, and I think therefore he speaks to a different audience. Um, so I think it's critical that we have all this polyculture of visionaries um, because I think as permaculture tells us, when we have polycultures of this sort, we're probably going to get better results than if, if, if all we had, everybody looked exactly like Mollison, who was very much a uh, outgoing sort of extroverty type um, agent provocateur, then you'd get, you get a monoculture of that. And I think um, other, you know, innovators and other visionaries in this field, um, I like that they are diverse in their nature. I think it makes the whole system more resilient. All right. So, um, Mr. Booker, I'm going to request that, okay, you've got a 10 for Mr. Malls mm-hmm. for, for the visionary. And uh, let's let's start off with uh, visionary and industrious. Clearly, the dude cranked out some books. Yeah, seems rather industrious. Um, he he does have that one patch of land that he had for a bit, and it's still doing food forest. We saw it in Jeff Lawton's food forest movie that was out like ten years ago or so. Yes, went and visited. Mollison's old place, and it's still cranking out food, and no one's been there for seven years. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, so there's, there's clearly that flavor of industry as well. But what I want to do is, um, is come up with like, uh, the numbers for Bill, the numbers for Sep, and the numbers for Mr. Holmgren. And so, what are your numbers? Wow, that's hard. I mean, you have to think, I mean, Mollison spent a lot of time just traveling all over the world, teaching, evangelizing, and so forth. So you know, he was gardening in a different sense. Um, and, um, you know, that it, it, some of his industriousness shows up there. So um, I, I think we have to give him full credit. I don't think he just sat around, um, you know, uh, doing doing very little uh, much of his life. He seemed to be out there and, and have his hand in, uh, you know, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him full credit. Um, I think home run actually, I know you, Did you just say 10? Yeah. You said 10 and 10. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I have to give Seth a 10 in industriousness. I mean, he, <laughs> you just watch him. I've gotten to watch him in person. Even he's, he's like, <laughs> He's on, you know, yeah. he's, 
he's he's like, you know, why are we sitting around? Let's 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 make something happen, you know. Um, and um, visionary, I I think I've, I've just kind of been watching him as he started to move around the planet and and have people work with you know ask him things. I, I think his vision is has opened up over the last you know two decades as 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 things in terms in terms of wideness. Um, you know, I, I think I'll give him a nine. Um, and, um, on, on visionary, um, and he's not quite as audacious in terms of scope as Mollison was. Um, but, um, uh, I'll give him a full 10 on industriousness. And, um, Holmgren is, like I said, he's sort of the quiet visionary. Um, he's been doing a lot. Uh, but it is, he's not nearly the same level of, of, um, outgoing, self-promoting kind of that Mollison was. Um, so I'll give him a nine on visionary as well. Um, and he, of course, has been quietly working on Meliodora for decades. Um, observing, accepting feedback, you know, doing his thing, writing uh, a couple of books, um, Retrotopia and Principles and Pat, you know, um, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. Um, so we'll give him at least a 9, 9.5 in industriousness. He's not been sitting around uh, idle either. So I think all of these gentlemen uh, show you know, show that. And, um, you know, and I feel like we need to go out and we could go back and look at pretty much all the people that were like in your top 10, um, that got voted on. Um, oh, right. And say that they all are both, um, highly industrious and innovative slash visionary. I think both of those things pretty much apply to all of them. Giving them exact numbers is is hard for me. Um, I'm, you know, um, but I just think they're all up in that category. Um, and we've got um, we've got folks that are in that category that uh, like Rosemary Morrow and Jude Hobb, and you know, we need to name some of the women who've been out there doing these things quietly as well, because oftentimes, as I said, they're also not as much about self-promotion as they are about just quietly taking care of their communities. Um, and, um, so there are a lot of, a lot of people out there whose names we're not going to list who also fall into this category. They're, they're just quietly doing their things out there. Um, and, um, so I, I want to at least point that out uh, instead of just, you know, saying, Oh, the, these, these, Three people are, you know, the metric or whatever. Well, I, I picked these three people. I mean, first of all, Bill, because that's what today's, you know, function is, is as we are reviewing part of Bill's book. Yes. Um, and then as part of that, we've already been talking uh, a lot about David Holmgren and, and how, what is his relationship to this work? Um, to this, I mean, by this work, I mean the book. You know, what, what is his relationship to this book? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Seth, who's got a very different uh, uh, thing 
going on, but he uses the word permaculture and, and I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's different, but it's very good. I mean, we, I think we could mention Willie Smith's as well. And, and I, mm-hmm. and I want to work in a lot more women in, in talking about this. So it doesn't seem so gender biased, but, um, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, uh, and you mentioned Jude Hobbs and Rosemary Morrow. Fair. Um, and it's kind of like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up a little shy in this space. Apparently, there was a woman who did a lot with the Green the Sahara project, and I I wish I could learn more about her, but she apparently died in the last few years. Mm-hmm. But you know, I still that's cool. I'm I'm like, let's add her to the list. Um, <clears throat> all right. Hi, this is Mark. Sometimes talking to a friend or family member about permaculture can be met with a blank stare if it's all new to them. A great way to explain some of it can be over a card game using permaculture playing cards, which each have interesting facts with quality illustrations and descriptions. A wide range of people, places, and things, all related to permaculture, can be found on the permaculture playing cards at richsoil.com forward slash cards. I've learned a lot from Penny. Um, Livingston Stark as well over the years. So a big shout out to Penny. Um, and, um, yeah, there, there are a bunch of them out there, you know? And, um, so I, I think that we need that, we need that diversity, um, in, in the community and we need to, to honor all of them. So I think that, uh, <clears throat> an important thing is you, you mentioned the Maestro Awards that we did earlier this year. Yes. And um I I really like how we did that. Um we basically had an open poll uh to all of permuse.com and uh who are the top leaders in permaculture and we we offered three different ways to do the polling. And then um when we were all done, we took the top I think it was like the top 46. Yes. And we emailed all of the 46 that were still alive, and we said, basically, uh, um, give a number for uh, each of these based, each of these people based on leadership, or for anybody, anybody in all of permaculture. In fact, here's the list of 133 people that were nominated for leadership in permaculture, um, and you don't have to limit yourself to this list, but pick the person that you think is the greatest leader in permaculture, give them a value of 100 and then name as many people in permaculture as you want, giving them an, if you gave somebody a number of 50, that's a person that would be providing half as much leadership or has provided half as much leadership as uh, the person that you gave a hundred to. And so, uh, so these 46 people, we sent this to 46 people. We got the results back. And then, you know, we announced them as the maestros. <clears throat> so we picked uh, the top ten from that list to be the maestros. Um, and, of course, number one was Bill Mollison. Uh, number two was Seth Holzer. Number three was Jeff Lawton. So we could move Jeff into here. Uh, number four was me, but that's probably biased because, I don't know, it all started with permits maybe. But this is from the top 46. So... And and there were several of those that replied, and their replies gave me a zero, a hard zero. And I thought that was, like, that was kind of mean. <laughs> but, but, okay, maybe they're leaving me out because I'm doing it or I'm, I'm managing the numbers. So it's like, that's fair. Still, I managed to get number four. Uh, number five, 
Willie Smith. I think Willie Smith should have definitely been ahead of me. Uh, number yeah, six. Willie's doing some awesome stuff, yeah. Just spectacular, powerful stuff. Uh, like, and I, I kind of think that by the time he's all done on this planet, he may very well hold the number one spot, like, hard. Um, uh, number six, Toby Hemingway. Number seven, Rosemary Morrow. Uh, number eight, Eric Tonsmeyer. Number nine, Brad Lancaster. And number 10, Mark Shepard. Yep. And then we went into the People's Choice Awards. So there were a few more people where uh, they got a lot more votes outside of the maestro voting system. And uh, so it's like, okay, we picked a few to, to throw in here. Um, number one, number one for the People's Choice, Joel Salatin. Uh, and then number two, David Holmgren. Mm-hmm. Uh, so apparently, David Holmgren didn't do very well in the Maestros, and I'm I'm not sure why. Um, and uh, I because this this whole thing kind of started off with Andrew Millison contacting me and saying, "Why isn't David Holmgren listed in your?" Uh, I think it was like on the. Uh, Wheat and Eco scale at the, at the, uh, you know, we've got level nine has 10 people and level 10 has Sepp Holzer. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why isn't, why isn't David Holmgren in there? And so we kind of started the poll based on, on that. And, uh, this is kind of how this whole thing got started was like, are we screwing over David Holmgren here? And I think that's a legitimate question. Number three was Bryant Redhawk. And I think that's because Brian has been so extremely generous on Terms.com with yeah. uh, soil stuff. Uh, number four, Ben Falk. Um, and I, it's kind of like, wow, why didn't he do better on the Maestro Awards? Um, mm-hmm. And then number five, really a shocker, Alan Savory. Why didn't yeah. Alan hit the Maestro Awards? Um, and then number six, Sean Dembrowski. Uh, he's the Edible Acres guy. He's got a a YouTube channel. It's a very nice. He's a soft-spoken dude. It's a, it's a really lovely little. It's growing. It's actually possibly even bigger than mine now. Um, all right. So we've listed. All these, so we could spend some time giving all of these people numbers, but um, I think we got to. But part of here's another thing that I thought of as you're going through this chart is. Um, so we've got the visionary scale, we've got the industrious scale, and it's a, and your chart is a four by four. And as I was reading it, part of what I was thinking is, is that if we bring people in here to Wheaton Labs, wherever they are on the chart, I think it's possible that after a couple of years, they could get bumped up in either vector mm-hmm. by by one whole unit of, you know, you've got it broken up into four, but by 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 a pretty significant score. So yeah. time, time helps. Time can help a person become visionary, and time can help a person become industrious. Uh, I would think of that as learning through role modeling. If you put people around other people who are more industrious, yes, then they can learn to become more industrious and more self. Um, directing and so forth. If you put people around others who tend to be a little more visionary, then they have the possibility of adapting and adopting that um, in themselves. I think that's true. That is very true. The other thing is, is that on your third level down, your third row down, 
um, which is productive with supervision. Um, and of course, the first thing that pops in my head is Mr. Slappy. Um, and it's kind of like, it's, it's amazing how so many people kind of, kind of cannot function without supervision. If you take away the supervision, they stop. And, and so I kind of feel like this is a big part of what Ant Village is about because of it. Because I kind of feel like in the boot camp, we provide supervision. We, prov- we guide people along. We guide people into productivity. And, um, uh, and then Ant Village is kind of like, okay, we will not be providing any guidance. Although I got to say that there was some stuff that I was seeing in Ant Village where I actually hired people to go up to Ant Village to help guide the ants at some point. I took on the expense because it was like, oh man, this is this is such a mess, and uh, and they need this is this is not going to end well, and so they need they need guidance. Um, but uh, that was a long, long time ago. But the key is is that it's the story of the, the grasshopper, and it's like some people are ants, and and they are highly industrious without Mister Slappy, without supervision. And, uh, and, and a lot of people, I think that they discover as they take this on, they discover that without supervision, they stop. They, they, they do very little and, um, they become frustrated. And, uh, and yet they don't want to be part of the bootcamp. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, okay, this is all valid and legit. And I, and I think that, I think a big part of what Ant Village provides is that you get, you get there and you realize that you are, you are certain you are an ant. And then when you are there standing on your plot, standing on your acre, you realize that you are a grasshopper. And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's part of what needs to sometimes be learned. And it's a, it is, it is a hard, lesson um and i think a a lot of people are going to say i am not the the test is wrong and it's kind of like well it's just you and nature standing there man (laughs) it's like are you gonna blame nature you know which is how a lot of people do oh the drought the drought (laughs) and it's i would like to i would like to point out that i did not use the word lazy at the bottom (laughs) <laughs> and there's a reason for that. And it comes back to what you are, you're saying here. I use the word unproductive. And the reason I did that is because in my experience, there's multiple reasons people are unproductive. Um, and I, I've seen people who are not lazy at all, but still unproductive. Um, and, um, so true. So, so there's productive with supervision. And this is the, 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 the people who have, are at the point where you say, here is task A, go do task A, and they will do task A. And when they finish task A, they will stop, and they will go, and let's kind of sit there, waiting for you to come say, now do task B. Right? Um, they have not yet learned how to look at a job and realize that a job is comprised of task A, B, C, D, E, and F, 
And when they complete task A, they look and say, okay, what's the next task? Oh, it's task B. I will then therefore move on to task B. They need the supervision of somebody pointing out to them the next step. A reliable worker to me is someone where you can say, I need you to do this job. And they um, can look at it and go, oh, all right, in order to do this job, I must do A, B, D, you know, C, D, so on and so forth. And therefore, I will start with task A, and I will get it complete, and then I will go looking to see if I can do task B. And they they will reliably kind of try to work their way through the job. Highly industrious is people who um, go looking at and sorting out what jobs are higher priority. They work hard on those. They... Um, and they have a high drive to complete jobs and get things done, you know, and um, therefore they're highly self-directed. They they can break a job down into tasks fluently and figure out how to prioritize those tasks and how to work around uh, roadblocks. I think a highly industrious person on your chart can build a house and sell it. Like yep. from scratch. Yes. A reliable worker can work on that same house for about two weeks without supervision. Yep. Um, then when you get to the start where it's productive with supervision, that person can go about three to four hours before they come to a total stop. And it's like on that same house, they can work on that same project. About three or four hours, and yeah. then, yeah. They you can say, up. like, here, I need you to paint this room, or I need you to, you know, um, put up this part of this wall or something. Sure. Right, right. Today uh, uh, today we're doing interior siding, so we're going to be, you know, doing the same thing for the next three days. And so go ahead, and then it's like then you, you can walk away, and they're still doing it two hours later. But when you get three to four hours later, they're kind of, they, they come to a stop. Well, I didn't know what you wanted here. And so I thought that the, the smart thing to do is to get paid to stand still and do nothing. That was what I thought you wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. Get the final word from you. Um, I thought about contacting you and I, you know, stuff like that. It, it's that whole thing. Then, then the last one, unproductive, it's kind of like, okay, you got them on the, on the job site. And you can put them next to the productive person with supervision who can keep prodding them along. Hey, quit fucking around. Get back to it, you know. But it's like they can they can be self-propelled for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then they kind of seem to stop. And then, and then that person sitting next to them is like, keep going, keep going, keep going, you know. That's, that's gonna be, it's like, it's like they need more than just supervision. They need micromanagement. Or else they, they actually produce nothing. Okay. Well, they uh, go off on a squirrel hunt. You know, they, uh, oh, they yeah. get distracted and off they go and they're, you're like, they're off task within 15 minutes because they, yeah, they're, they're off on some other, some tangent. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. There's and, something, shiny objects distract them all the time. Yes. Yeah. I would also say that we should also just quickly put in here, there is another dimension to this whole thing besides industriousness, which is 
skill. And um, the the quick story I have on that was um, I I was uh, building a having a large well we'll just call it a data center built um, for me uh, it it was in the form of a telecommunications um, uh, data center and um, I ended up with these two gentlemen both of whom were actually in their late sixties they were both retired coming in to do the work. They both had 40 years of experience in installation, right? And I, I went over there where, where they were building the new building, and I got them started in the morning, and I showed them what I needed. And I watched them for the first couple minutes, and they're just moving along, just sort of like, you know, real laid back and everything. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm wondering how long this is going to take, you know? Uh-huh. I go off and I come back at the end of the day and I walk in and I'm like, how did that happen? Right. How did they get that far along in just one day? And I watched them for a couple of moments and I realized that they had started by sitting and planning and what they were doing was like a little ballet. There was not a single wasted motion. There was not all this frenetic activity running hither and thither. Everything they were doing was very smooth and every movement had economy to it and they were just cranking it out. But if you watched them just for a moment, you know, just kind of in passing, you'd think that they were just sort of like, Oh yeah, here we go. We're, we're moving, you know, and, and, but in reality, because they had that level of skill, they were highly industrious. And highly skilled, and as they 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 stayed on task, they they did what they needed to do. But because there was no wasted motion, that high high industrious coefficient could therefore be leveraged against highly skilled, and they could crank it out. And when you put somebody who is highly industrious and skilled into a place, they will literally do orders of magnitude more than an unskilled person with that requires supervision i i yeah absolutely i i also think that there are certain people that are going to be highly industrious without skill yep i mean it's like they're going to figure it out they will yeah and so take longer to get it done yeah oh yeah yeah they will and uh uh all true all true and and yet you know this is how they're going to build their skill too and i kind of feel like you know that's the kind of person that's a really great fit for Ant Village. You yes. Know, I just need a place to try this stuff out. I'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, kind of a thing. And it's like, uh, that, that is magical stuff. All right. I want to move on. I, I, it's, we've kind of covered your chart, which I think is a critically important chart. And the big thing is, is that in your chart, uh, you have labeled, here's who we need at Wheaton Labs. And I, and I'm, and, and I'm kind of thinking because, I'm making all these sacrifices in order to be able to um, grow the future leadership of permaculture. And um, and so sometimes we've had a couple of people show up who felt like my mission should be very different from what it is, that, that basically I should sacrifice my life, my land, my projects, my everything for their projects instead of what I'm trying to do. And uh, a lot of times it's like uh, – um, you know, you should be a place that facilitates homeless people. Um, or one, one guy said every community should facilitate 
one angry dude because <laughs> because he needs to be a recovering angry dude and and community is the best place for them to recover from being an angry dude and it's kind of like i suppose there could be a community where that is their mission that's not our mission and and so i kind of feel like we're not a rehab center for any kind of <laughs> rehabbing and we'll make uh, a little make a little side note that every Group I have dealt with that understands culture will tell you that you do what they call guard the eastern door, which is you don't let people come in the door with grief and anger because the grief and anger will spread to everybody else. So you need to do the work of addressing that uh, before you let them too deep into the inner circle of your group or it will poison the whole group. You've you've read uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, right? Yes. And so as part of that, like in the middle of the book, towards the end, he's got like, I think it was called circles. I can't remember. But um, basically there's different levels. And then, you know, people eventually get get their way up to being part of the nest. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, yeah, you got you to gotta go up the, the, the ladder, I suppose. But I, I think it kind of says the same thing. Yes. Yeah, you protect your innermost circle from people coming in from the outside carrying all kinds of anger and trauma and everything else because they have they have to have a clear mind in order to be able to make good decisions. Yeah. I I think, you know, the thing is is that in order for us to move forward and do all the things that we do, um I, I don't think we have we can we can spare a lot of cycles for being a rehab center, I think that there are people, I think there's a lot of people who come here looking for some kind of substance. And, and for that, I think we, that is what we're all about or a big part of what we're all about. And uh, where it's like, okay, they do their worky job and it's kind of like my life feels gray and empty and pointless. And then instead they come here and their life is full of, substance and they they matter they are somebody whereas before it's like their job could immediately be replaced by anybody and um anyway there's that kind of element i i I think what you might be maybe i could recap it by saying in order to make visionary happen you have to also be practical and visionary and innovative is challenging on its own and therefore in order to actually make it really happen you have to be focused. You, you have to be focused in your mission and um, realize that you can't solve every problem. There's no way any one you know, group can. And therefore, if you, your mission is to create innovative solutions that, uh, that, you, that necessarily narrows your bandwidth to be able to do other things. You can't be you know, helpful in dealing with the trauma of a huge number of people while at the same time you are also um, spending a lot of your life energy on being uh, visionary and, and creating new things. doesn't mean that, that dealing with trauma and grief doesn't need to be done. It certainly does. It's a huge need. But if you have a finite amount of energy to put into things, then um, there is something to be said in keeping clear as to the best use of your energy at any given point in time. This podcast is continued in part two. I'm Edward Norton. No, not that one, the other one. And I love pies.
No, not that kind, the other kind. Hermes is an old school forum packed full of friendly people who occasionally give out a slice of pie. You'll never forget your first slice of pie. It made me feel so good. I had to buy a whole pie so I could share the love. Oh, and there's apples too. Sign up at permies.com to join in the world of homesteading and permaculture and you too might get a slice of pie.